Well, this morning, we continue in our Summer Psalms series. Say that ten times fast. But we're going to look at Psalm 3. But before we get into the text this morning, I thought it would be helpful to give, um, and maybe not an explanation, maybe just a word on how to read the Psalms. Now, this is not the only way, but this is just something that we're going to see today. Um, As we saw last week, when we looked at Psalm 2, there are often two applications of the same text. So when we looked at Psalm 2 last week, we saw the immediate context of how the people of Israel would have read this at the time, and then we saw in the New Testament that there is a future fulfillment, a future application that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, another helpful principle of interpretation would be to realize that when we read the Psalms, oftentimes we are reading about actual events that took place in the life of the one writing the Psalm. It's not just uh, an exaggeration of something. It's not just like, you know, I I stub my toe and then, oh my word, this suffering is terrible, Lord, rescue me. There are actual literal situations of danger and peril and suffering that we read about the experience in the Psalms. And a lot of times, this is why it's so helpful to have a Bible that has cross-referencing. You guys know what cross-referencing is? As you read the text, you see little letters by a word. Well, in your margin, there should be references. And as you see those letters and look, oh, okay, well, this corresponds to 1 Samuel 7 or whatever, it's helpful to put those pieces together. And it's especially helpful in the Psalms because we see the context. We see the background of what's going on in the life of the author. And that helps us to understand, oh, that's why he's so intense about that. That's what's going on in his heart. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at Psalm 3. So while we don't want to over-spiritualize everything and, and try to see every piece of the psalm as some kind of significant something or another, we do want to take these literal historic situations and apply them. And this is why I would say that we need to read the psalms in a principled way. Right? We read about these accounts, we read about what's going on, and we need to get the principle in addition to this original context like we saw last week. So a principled reason, reading of the Psalms would be to see what's going on and be able to, using Scripture, apply that in a helpful way to our current situation. So this morning, as we begin, let's open to the book of Psalms, if you haven't already done that, right in the middle of your Bible, and we're going to look at chapter 3 this morning. So let's read chapter 3. And we'll pray and get into our text for today. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray together. Lord, we're asking for your help this morning. 
As we come to this text, we want to see what's really there. We don't want to just read over the surface and assume that we understand what's going on. But Lord, we need your help in opening our eyes to see wondrous things from your law. And I pray that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would do that here in this room right now this morning. Lord, you have promised faithfulness to your word. You have promised to be a help for us in time of need. And so we come to you, Lord, and we need your help this morning. I need your help. And I pray that this would be a time of learning. Yes, that we we see new things, but this would be a time of encouragement as we see what David was going through in this psalm and we think about how this applies to our life, Lord, please, don't let us leave here the same. Would we be encouraged and challenged and strengthened through this time in your word? And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 3 contains many firsts in the book of Psalms. Many first-time occurrences. It's the first chapter with a heading giving us both the author and the occasion. And we see this oftentimes through the Psalms where the authorship and the situation is written out at the top. It's the first psalm attributed to David, specifically. Of the first 41 psalms, all but four of them are attributed to David. So heavily Davidic writing in this first section of the psalms. It's the first psalm to include this mysterious word, Selah, You see that kind of off to the side of the text. Now, there's not a good agreed-upon translation of this Hebrew word. Most commentators agree that it signals a, a pause or a break in the music. Most of these were songs that were sung, and so that's, that's about the most agreed-upon answer we can get, is that it signaled some kind of pause in the liturgy, some kind of stop in what was going on. I tend to agree with one of my favorite commentators, the Babylon Bee, when they said that this actually means an extended guitar solo. So just know that when you read the text. Uh, We're going to take this psalm as it appears in most of our Bibles, two verses at a time. And these paragraph separations are not inspired, nor are the verse numbers. I don't know if you know this, but verse numbers and paragraph separations were added later to help us navigate the Bible. David didn't sit down and say, Verse 1, many are my foes, and that's not how it worked. He just wrote the psalm out of the passion of his heart. And later, to help us navigate the text, we got these verse numbers, which are very helpful. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 and see our first point. Number 1, the situation. Number 1, the situation. David was familiar with conflict. He had faced conflict with enemy nations. He had faced relational conflict all through his reign And the situation here in Psalm 3, however, I think must have been especially painful for David because it was conflict with his own son, Absalom. Absalom was trying to get rid of David so that he could take over the throne. He thought he could do a better job being king than David, and that's kind of the situation. So let's look at a little bit of context before we dive right into this. Here, and you can read about this in 2 Samuel. I'm going to read a little bit from that in a moment. But here's what Absalom would do. He'd go to the gate of the city, and this is where everybody would come and wait if they had an audience with the king. You have a complaint, you have a request, you have something you need to do, they would come and wait at the gate of the city until they got called and they would go in and talk to the king. Absalom would go to this gate of the city, and he'd wander around and say, hey, what are are you doing here? What are are you coming to talk about? And he'd hear the complaints and the things, and he'd go, oh, 
Wouldn't it be nice if the king had a guy who could just hear all this stuff and take care of it? Wouldn't that be great? And then in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 4, you can turn there or you can just listen as I read. Here's what we read. Then Absalom would say to the people, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Talk about shameless self-promotion. So what he's doing is he's going to the people. He's convincing them that he would do a better job of being king, of being judge than his father, and in doing so, he gained great support. A lot of people turned away and were following Absalom. So now let me just read a section from 2 Samuel. This is going to give us some context as to what's going on in Psalm 3. 2 Samuel 15, starting in verse 15. Uh, 13, sorry. A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. They've turned to follow him. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord the king decides. So the king went out him and all of his household after him. This is the context of Psalm 3. David is on the run from his son Absalom. The people who once swore allegiance to David as the anointed king of Israel have turned and are now following his son, and David's heart is broken. And in his distress, in the middle of this betrayal physical danger, having to flee in the, in the night. They fled in the middle of the night so as not to be seen. He cries out to the Lord. And this is what we have record of in Psalm 3. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Throughout his life, this is at the end of David's reign, okay? Throughout his life, David had been very vocal about his dependence upon God. He had encouraged others to trust in the Lord for salvation. So now, when it looked like everything was falling apart, from, from an outside perspective, it looked like the promises of God to David had failed. And it looks like the kingship is in jeopardy. People are mocking and making accusations. And yet in the middle of this, in the middle of this, hearing this ring in his head, there's no salvation for you and God. David remains steadfast. He does not forget the promises of God, nor does he lose faith in God's ability to act on his behalf, which we're going to see as we move through. So this is the situation. This is what produced verses 1 and 2 in David's heart. Betrayal, on the run, heartbroken from the actions of his son. And he cries out to the Lord. Now number two. God's protection and David's humility. God's protection and David's humility. Our second point comes from verses three and four. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I think it's very interesting and very commendable that David did not look to himself or his bodyguards, or his soldiers for protection. He knows his help would come from the Lord. He knows that the Lord is a shield about him. 
In verses 1 and 2, he uses this imagery of people pressing in on every side. And no matter where, it's like he's in a battle. Okay, He's using this imagery. And no matter what direction he looks, there is no escape. Enemies there, enemies there, enemies there, all around him. And he cries out to the Lord. But in the midst of this battle, he takes comfort in the fact that he is not dependent upon himself for protection. The Lord, his God, is his shield his protection, his barrier between him and these attackers. Not only is the Lord his protection, but David says in the text that the Lord is his glory and the lifter of his head. Now glory in this context has to do with dignity or honor, usually in a public way. This is significant because David, being the chosen king of Israel, being the one of whom it is said was a man after God's own heart, does not find his worth and dignity in himself, but in God. Can we say the same? I am really quick to rely upon my credentials rather than saying God is my honor, God is my glory. David was a warrior. He fought and won many battles over the course of his kingship. He could have taken an attitude of self-reliance, self-dependence. But rather, he knows his help, his strength, his honor, and his dignity don't come from himself, but come from the Lord. Now David also says that the Lord is the lifter of his head. During the time of kings, uh, you would come into the presence of the king with your head bowed as a sign of respect, submission. And you would have to wait for the king to say, go ahead and lift your head. We'll we'll continue. If he was pleased with you, that's what would happen. And it's noteworthy that David says that the Lord is the one who lifts his head. This is where I'm getting this humility that I see in David. He's not arrogant. He's not presumptuous. He doesn't come to God just head high and say, hey, I got some problems going on down here. Why don't you uh, come and fix what's going on? It's not David's posture at all. His head is bowed down from his circumstances, from things going on around him, from the weight of his troubles, and he waits for the Lord to exalt him. He does not exalt himself. This is the kind of humility, I think, that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 5, and in fact... I'm sure Peter had read all of these psalms and picked up on this. 1 Peter 5 says this in verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, God may exalt you. We don't humble ourselves kind of in a fake way, so that when we time it right, we can say, oh, here I am, I'm back, I I can exalt myself. It's not an act that we do. We humble ourselves under God so at the right time, He can exalt us. Self-exaltation is one of the biggest snares in the Christian life because everything we have, everything we do, everything we are is a direct result of the power and working of God, not of yourself. So we wait on the Lord. David waited for the Lord to exalt him. He did not exalt himself, even though as king, anointed one, warrior, he had the right 
in some people's eyes. He waits for the Lord. Now, in verse 4, David cries to the Lord, and the Lord answers him, but we don't see explicitly what this answer is, do we? But we see that God answers from his holy hill. The temple mount in Jerusalem was considered the holy hill of the Lord, the place where the presence of God dwelt. And yet, while we don't explicitly see God's answer, we see the result of God's answer, I think, in David's actions and what he does in the following verses. This brings us to point number three. Peace from trusting God. Peace from trusting God. Let's look at verses five and six. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. God answered David when he cried out to him. And no matter how it was that he did this, however God answered David, no matter how it was that he reassured him of his love and protection, the result of God's answer to David was peace and rest. Even in this situation, even in what we just read about in 2 Samuel. How many times have you and I been kept awake at night because of a problem? Maybe it's sickness, maybe it's a relational thing, maybe it's something with your kids, a work situation, whatever it is. We've probably all been in a situation where you're kept up, you can't sleep. And how often, just to use myself as an example, how often do I turn to my own resources and try to figure things out and fix it on my own before I go to God? Far too often. We can't, we can't fix things. <laughs> if you've lived a little bit of life, you know that it, it just it, ne- it never works. In our own strength, we, we don't have what it takes. But in this psalm, when David lies down to sleep, he is expressing confidence in God's ability to hear and answer his prayer. God is the great king who will come to the aid of his people. We can't accomplish anything while we sleep, but God can. We have no idea what God is capable of doing. Have you ever wondered why God created us to need rest? You ever wonder why such a significant portion of our life is spent with your eyes closed, sleeping? I think that sleep and our need for sleep, our physical need in our bodies for sleep is a parable. It is a tangible illustration of our total dependence upon God. What if God had just made us to go 24 hours a day? Go, 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 go. You never had to stop. You never had to rest. Now, to some of us, that might be appealing. You could get a lot done. But what would you miss? You'd miss a picture. You'd miss a picture of what it means to rely on someone else. You'd miss the sweetness of rest and the refreshment that comes. And I think most importantly, we would miss the longing that comes into our hearts for ultimate and eternal rest which God has promised his people. Sleep isn't just sleep. It is a parable for us to know our dependence upon God and to give us a hunger and a thirst for rest that only God gives. 
All throughout the Bible, there is this promise of rest. For Israel, they thought it was the promised land. And then they got there and there was all these battles and these enemies. That wasn't rest. Then they go through the kings and then they get taken into captivity. And all of these things happen. And they're always looking for this rest. And then we come to Jesus Christ. And we see that he is the ultimate way that we will find rest. Through his death, burial, and resurrection that God has given to us. That's what sleep is. It's a picture for us to know. I also think there's a really great example in this psalm, in Psalm 3, of prayer before plans. Prayer before plans. Too often, plans come before prayer, like I was just saying. We plow ahead and try to solve the problem and fix the situation. Then when that doesn't work, we cry out to God and say, I don't know what to do. But what if that order was reversed? What if first we went to the Lord and cried out to him for help? How many blessings we may miss by conceiving our own plans and trying to forge ahead and do it on our own only to see God totally change those plans. Anybody else have that happen? You think you know what's going on, you make a plan and God says, nope, you're doing this. That's his wisdom brothers and sisters. That's his grace to us because I am convinced that in those times he is not only just proving that he knows better, but he's keeping us from things that that would have been harmful for his children. He has the right to restructure things (laughs) however he wants. The beautiful example in this psalm is that of David crying aloud to the Lord And the Lord answering him, and that answer produces in David peace and calm, even in the middle of trouble. And he is able to lie down and sleep. Not only sleep, but wake up the next day because of God's sustaining grace. I mean, do you realize that every morning you wake up is a direct result of the grace of God in your life? God doesn't owe us life. There's nothing that we have done to make him indebted to us to give us breath every day. But he does. And that is an act of his grace towards us. He not only gives us sleep, but the privilege of another day until he calls us home. What a day that'll be. When we read this section about David's dependence, about this peace that he had in the middle of his trials, we should think of Jesus' words to us in John 14. Some of the greatest words of comfort that our Lord ever spoke to us. Let me read John 14, 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. See, there's a peace that the world thinks it has, but really what they just mean is absence of trouble. That's not peace. Peace is the God-given ability to weather the trouble, to stay steadfast in that trouble, and that can only come from him. The same peace that gave David the ability to lie down and rest also, I think we see here, gives him confidence. Look at verse 6 with me. 
David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Same language as chapter 2, where the rulers and the nations of the world set themselves against the Lord. You can go back and check that out if you weren't here. But here David says, I will not be afraid of this. I am not going to lose sleep over this. His confidence is not in his own ability, but in the Lord who is a shield about him. Now, verse 7 may seem a little bit strange or even harsh to our ears, so we need to look at this for just a moment. Verse 7, David again crying out to the Lord, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Now, this first line, Arise, O Lord, should be read in contrast to the opening in verse 1. If you look back in verse 1, David said that many were rising against him. And now David asks the Lord to rise against them. And what is he asking the Lord to do when he arises? In verse 1, people were calling into question not just David's character, but they're calling into question God's ability to provide salvation for David. Verse 1. There is no salvation for him in God. In other words, either David doesn't believe or God doesn't have the ability or both. They're calling this into question. So when David calls to the Lord, he is saying, prove them wrong. Deliver me. Show your power. Show your salvation that you have promised to me. This isn't so much a vindication of David as it is of God. Because I believe that David is more concerned with how God is viewed, how God is glorified, than himself. This is a call for God to act and prove his faithfulness. So what's with the striking on the teeth, or the breaking of the teeth and striking on the cheek? Well, striking on the cheek was the equivalent to a public insult. If you remember from history... To challenge someone to a duel, you'd slap them in the face. And that was considered this shocking, almost, this this humiliation. Couldn't find the word there for a minute. Public humiliation. And so to defend the honor, the one who got slapped would agree to the duel. Right? It was meant to anger them, to raise their hackles, and so they would respond and get into this duel with somebody. David's honor, his dignity from a human perspective, had been taken away. He is no longer king on the throne. He is fugitive, running away in the middle of the night. This is why earlier he had said that God was his glory. God was his honor and the lifter of his head because his head had been bowed down by these circumstances. So basically what David is asking for is that the same humiliation that had been planned for him by his enemies would be turned around on them. Turn it around. Strike them on the cheek. Now what about the breaking of the teeth? And I don't know, I can't read that without going like that. Mm, It sounds like it hurts. This is obviously a harsh thing, a painful thing, but there's a connection in Scripture Again, if you use your cross-reference, you can see this, to the book of Joel. And I think this is really going to help in our understanding here, so hang with me. In Joel chapter 1, 
the wicked nation who is oppressing Israel is described as a lion who has teeth or a lioness who is fanged. And they are oppressing Israel with these teeth, with these fangs. So when David prays that the Lord would break the teeth of the wicked, he is asking for the Lord to remove the effectiveness that they have in carrying out the wickedness that they have planned. A lion without teeth is not as threatening as a lion with teeth. So it's not as if God is going to come down and start punching everybody in the mouth. This is not it. David is praying that God would thwart the plans, interrupt the plans of the wicked, take away the tools, take away the weapons that would oppress me and oppress the people of God, break the teeth of the wicked. This is also a wonderful foreshadowing and a picture forward of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for his people. Isn't it? Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion, seeking whomever he can devour. But Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross and glorious resurrection from the dead, has defeated Satan and removed his fangs. He has broken the teeth of the devil and taken away the weapon with which we can be destroyed. He can no longer harm us. All he can do is roar and threaten. But if we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is nothing ultimately that can harm us. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to the Lord. Just as David prays that God would break the teeth of the wicked, so our Savior Jesus Christ has gone up against our greatest enemy and broken his teeth. There is no Savior like our Savior. There is no God like our God. Now one very important thing to point out in verse 7. This is so important. Hear this. David is asking the Lord to avenge him. He is not asking for an opportunity to avenge himself. We need to see that. And why is that? Because David knew the law of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. This is God speaking. Vengeance is mine and recompense, which means payment for what was happened. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. As much as we might want to take action for ourselves, stand up. We hear, well, defend yourself, stand up for yourself. I'm not suggesting that we be doormats. I'm just saying the Bible is very clear. We must leave it in the hands of God. The Apostle Paul, quoting from Deuteronomy 32, says this in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. As it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Very important to note that Psalm 3 is not giving you and I permission to go around slapping people figuratively. We are not the ones in charge of avenging ourselves. God will handle that. So what's our responsibility in the meantime? Trust him. Be patient. Wait for the Lord. 
In due time, he will act. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not ours. Now back to this last verse in Psalm 3. The salvation that had been called into question in verse 1 is now declared to belong to the Lord. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now this verse might seem a little bit odd in the sense that everything 1 through 7 has been individual. It has been David speaking about his problem, his cry to the Lord, the Lord answering him individually. And now this moves to some corporate or collective language. Your blessing be on your people collectively. But it's actually not that odd. I think it is showing us that David's concern is not only for himself, but for the people he has been appointed to care for and rule over. Okay, he's not, he's not just selfishly trying to kind of save his own skin and get out. He has concern for the people of God that have been put under his care. He also recognizes that when God protects and blesses the king, the king in turn then is able to protect and bless his people. And isn't it the same for us? As we live and serve under King Jesus. Paul told the Corinthians that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all things promised, all things foretold. And just as Jesus obeyed and pleased the Father and fulfilled all these things, all of the blessings that he receives as God's anointed, like we saw last Sunday, He then passes down to his people, us, anyone who names the name of Jesus and has turned from their sin and called upon him for salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. As we come to a close this morning, I want to just give you an illustration of how God used this psalm this week. This is very practical. This is very, very practical. I was talking with someone who had been struggling with trusting the Lord and trusting his plan. And they knew objectively that the word of God is true. They have strong trust in him. And yet the realities of life press in, don't they? I mean, we can't live in a vacuum. We live in the world. And by vacuum, I just mean this little airtight container where nothing can get at us and nothing can harm us. We, we live in this place. Anxiety about the future, family planning, parenting issues, financial matters, all of these things that we have to deal with can start to overshadow the truth of God's word and what we know to be true from the scriptures. And because I had been studying this psalm and the Lord brought this to my remembrance, I was able to share what we see in Psalm 3. That even though David was in a really bad place, I mean really bad, right? We, we, we read about that. Even though he was on the run, he did not immediately try to just fix it, solve the problem, gather the soldiers, we're going to make a stand, we're going to take, no. He cried out to the Lord. It's the prayer before plans principle. How often do we do that? I just want to encourage us as a church, pray. Pray. God is willing and able to both hear and answer us. 
Might not be the answer you're looking for. Might not be the timing you're looking for. But God is not silent. He will answer. So my encouragement to us this morning, to me and to you, is very simple. Trust the Lord. And if you say, I, why? Why should I trust the Lord? Look back in your life. We don't have to look very far to see the faithfulness of God, do we? Look to the examples in Scripture of how God is always 100% of the time faithful and trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help so badly. We are so dependent upon you. And in your grace, you have not only granted us physical life, but you have granted us spiritual life if we are in Christ. None of us could have made a plan like this. None of us have the wisdom to formulate this kind of plan. But you, O Lord, are wise and good and faithful and true and generous towards your people. Lord, help us to trust you more. Please give all of us the ability by your Holy Spirit to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from our resources that we think we have and to cry out to you. Let us put prayer before planning and trust that you will always do the right thing, which you will. Lord, give us confidence in the truth of your word. Give us confidence in your character and how you have revealed yourself to us. And I pray that each one of us, from the oldest all the way down to the youngest child here, would trust you. And that trust is simply a verbal acknowledgement of our absolute dependence upon you. So Lord, make this a reality in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.